Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon, but his message focuses on the sins of the people back home in Jerusalem and Judah. And one might anticipate the objection that, in fact, the prophesied judgment is too much. Yes, they have done bad things. Yes, we know the people back home aren't living the way that they should, but they're not that bad. They're not, you know, that worthy of the prophesied judgment. Well, in chapters 12 through 24, that's 13 chapters, Ezekiel makes the case that they are that bad, that they are deserving of all the terrible judgment that will come their way. Last Sunday, the issues that were brought up included the matter of false prophets and prophetesses, the messages of false hope that they were preaching to the people in exile, and as the Lord through Isaiah, or Ezekiel put it, out of their own imaginations, they come up with these messages. They also had the belief that, okay, we'll accept the message, but that's in the distant future. That's going to be years, if not decades, down the line. They also believed that there were still good people back home and God would not destroy Jerusalem and Judah if there were good people there. It's sort of like Abraham when the Lord said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abraham knew his nephew. Lot was down there. It's like, well, if there are good people there, would you destroy the good with the bad? But the Lord says, listen, well, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, They could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons and daughters or daughters. They alone would be saved, but the land would be desolate. I find it interesting that Noah and Job were not Jewish, and Daniel was in exile. So nobody's in Jerusalem, Noah, Job, or Daniel. Um... But God says even if they were there, Jerusalem and Judah would still be destroyed. Ezekiel continues to describe the sinfulness of the people that will lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. In chapter 15, which we'll look at today, and then 16 in chapter 15, we have the parable of the vine. Uh, So one of the things I think I've tried to stress over the years is we need to read the whole Bible. And it is good if we begin at the beginning and then work our way through. If you start at Ezekiel, you might miss something very important in chapter 15. And that is that in the Jewish tradition, in the Hebrew tradition, the idea of Israel as a vine is very common. It begins all the way back in Genesis 49 when Jacob blessed his son Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful vine a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. More recently for Ezekiel, his contemporary is Jeremiah. Uh, The Lord says through Jeremiah, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a, a corrupt wild vine? That is, Israel, I planted you, I put you in the promised land. You were a good vine and you went bad. What happened? But perhaps the best-known reference is found in Isaiah chapter 5. It is the song of the vineyard, and it's about a vineyard. The last verse is, "The, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. 
So the theme that we find in these references is that, in fact, Israel is a vineyard that God, that the Lord had planted. It is interesting, beginning all the way back with Jacob talking about Joseph, prophetically, and in Jeremiah and Isaiah, is that the focus is on the fruit that they bear, their fruit-bearing properties. That, in fact, they are good vines, but they are producing wild grapes. Okay? This is not what Ezekiel's message is about. It's quite different. He uses the same analogy of them being a vineyard. And I think when he did this, the exiles would perk up. Oh, yeah, I, I know this. Yeah, Israel is like a vine. But now he takes it in a very different direction. Look, if you would, in the first two verses. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how is the wood of a vine better than that of a branch of any of the trees in the forest? Well, suddenly we see he's not talking about fruit. He's actually talking about the vine itself as wood. Verse 3. Is wood ever taken from it to make it anything or to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? You know, for all the woodiness of the the vine, and it does turn woody, it's still not strong enough for any good purpose, not even a peg. Verse 4. And after it is thrown in the fire as fuel and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it then useful for anything? If it was not useful for anything when it was whole, how much less can it be made into something useful when the fire has burned it and it is charred? In other words, you can't make charcoal. You can't make charcoal out of the vine. Okay. Now the application, verse 6. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so I will treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Although they have come out of the fire, the fire will yet consume them. And when I set my face against them, you will know that I am the Lord. I will make the land desolate because they have been unfaithful, declares the sovereign Lord. In a word, judgment is coming. The land will be made desolate. Well, at this point, the exiles who are listening to Ezekiel, um, they might say, well, that's just your opinion. Um, see, one of the things about parables, and we've studied parables in the New Testament, is sometimes they are seen as open to various interpretations. Um, and so the people listening to Ezekiel might say, yeah, we don't agree with your interpretation. After all, if you look at these, there's eight verses here, it's not until verse number six that Jerusalem is mentioned by name. So, one could say the first five verses, that's from the Lord, but verse six, where you say, Jerusalem, Ezekiel, that's you. You're interpreting this, this parable that the Lord gave you as referring to Jerusalem. But in what follows in chapter 16, a long chapter, by the way, word of warning, 63 verses, we have a series of allegories, not exactly a parable, but very similar to a parable where the sin of unfaithfulness and faithlessness is clear. And it is not something that you can say, oh, well, that's just your interpretation. An allegory is a story, a poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Um, The language is somewhat graphic. And one commentator said that Christians tend to be offended by chapter 16 because 
it seems that Ezekiel is overly graphic, almost vulgar. And it's like, that, is that really necessary? Um, when you look at chapter 16, as I was studying it, it seems like, to me, the best comparison is that of a dream. Because it is a strangely fractured mode of discourse, as one person put it. It's like segmented. You know how in dreams that you're, you're one place and then the next minute you're somewhere else and you're somewhere else. And it, you're like, where's the continuity? Where's the string that ties this all together? There is a string that ties it all together, but it's like we're given pieces of the puzzle. And then at the end, we get to see the whole picture. The first segment is the beginning. Look, if you would, it's the first seven verses of chapter 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And so you lay there in your blood and I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. You were naked and bare. What's going on here? What is this about? For all the symbolism, this is the story of the history of Jerusalem. A city that was in Canaan, in Palestine, before the Israelites came in. It was settled by others. This is a passage that used to trouble me. I was like, you know, your, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And actually, if you go back in Deuteronomy, we're told that their parents, Abraham and Sarah, were Arameans. They weren't Amorites. They weren't Hittites. What's being said here is that Jerusalem was actually settled first by the Amorites, who used to be a desert people who came into the land, and then the Hittites, who were in central uh, Turkey, Anatolia, who came south. Um, they were the people who began building Jerusalem. So this is, in fact, the beginning of the history of Jerusalem. But then God brings Israel in. And the picture, and again, it's segmented. It doesn't quite, the pieces don't quite fit exactly together. But the picture is that of a newborn baby. That, in fact, someone has given birth and the umbilical cord was not cut. The afterbirth comes out with the child. And then the child is simply thrown out in the field. The baby's not washed with water. Or as was the custom, and even in the 20th century among nomadic peoples, that a baby would be rubbed down with salt. Um, it's more antiseptic than it was ritual. And then the baby would be tied up in cloths. No, this didn't happen. The baby's simply thrown out into the field. Uh, leaving a girl baby out in the field to die was not an uncommon practice. In the ancient world, abortion was not as common because, first of all, you don't know if it's a boy or a girl, and secondly, it can be dangerous for the mother. So they let the pregnancy come to term, and if a woman would deliver a baby girl, eh, 
a lot of families didn't want girls, they would simply throw the child out to be exposed and die of exposure or to be eaten by wild animals. Israel did not practice infanticide. In her faithfulness, she did not practice this. And we find this in the early church as well. In an early church writing, we read, you shall not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn. But the picture is here that somebody, in fact, wants to kill this baby. They've thrown the baby out into a field, and there it is to die of exposure. But, and now a traveler comes by, and the traveler is the Lord. A traveler comes by, and he sees this baby, interesting expression, which will come up again later in the chapter, kicking in its blood. So it isn't simply the baby and the cords cut and been cleaned and it's all. And no, no, it's the baby, the afterbirth, the blood, everything. And the baby's, we would assume, screaming, kicking in its blood. And this traveler passes by and he sees this child. That baby is Israel. And the Lord is the one who delivered them. Verse 7, I made you grow up like a plant of the field. You grew up and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. The baby grows up, becomes quite beautiful, a beautiful girl. And she grows to sexual maturity. And yet she remains naked and bare. Now we skip to the next segment in verses 8 through 14. The traveler comes by again, verse 8. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So I adorned you with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made you your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. As I mentioned, this is sort of fractured segments. So, the traveler rescues the baby, and the baby grows up to sexual maturity. And yet, the baby's still naked. The baby still has blood from the birth. So, you know, the continuity isn't perhaps what we might think, but it's an allegory. Something is being told us here. When the traveler passes by, he sees her that she is old enough for marriage, and he marries her. I don't know if you remember in the story of the book of Ruth. Do you remember how that Naomi gives her instructions that after the party, you know, because they've been harvesting, Ruth is to find out where Boaz is sleeping, and then she is to go at his feet and take part of his robe and put it over her. It is, in essence, the equivalent of an engagement ring or a wedding ring. It is to say, I belong to you. And so that's what he does. He spreads the corner of his garment, in part to cover her nakedness, but also to marry her. He gives a solemn oath, and he enters into a covenant with her. 
and you became mine, the Lord says. Israel belongs to the Lord by covenant. And then he puts ointments on her. He clothes her with an embroidered dress, leather sandals. He adorns her with jewelry, um, puts a ring on her nose, earrings on her ears, and a beautiful crown on her head. He dresses her, he adorns her with the best, gold and silver. And he gives her only the best food, fine flour, honey, and olive oil. And she grows up to be this beautiful woman. She is now a married woman, but she is a beautiful woman. And her fame spreads to the other nations because of her beauty. Her beauty was made perfect because of the gifts of the traveler. And all this points to the grace of God, what God had done for Israel. God's grace is pictured as taking a rejected and abandoned baby girl, rescuing her, entering into covenant with her, giving her everything, only the best. Now at this point, I could see that some people might, in today's world, be offended by this passage for a variety of reasons. For some, it's unnecessarily graphic, almost vulgar. Um, but I think a point is being made. The patriarchal nature of it, oh, it's a man who rescues the baby girl. The ownership, you became mine. Oh, there you go. There you have a man owning a woman. Or the dolling up of the girl. I put on nice clothes and leather sandals and I dressed you up. And in the process of being offended, the point is missed, that of rescue and grace. Rescue and redemption. And something else will be lost in the verses, the passages that will follow If we are so offended, we're so distracted by the language of the first two segments, then we will miss the significance, the import of Israel's unfaithfulness. Someone who was rescued at birth, someone who was cared for and then married and entered into covenant with and taken care of with the best of everything, now becomes unfaithful. She chooses to become a prostitute rather than a faithful wife. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 15 through 34. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by And your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. 
in all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Let's stop here for a moment and just catch our breath. It'll continue in a bit. But that which had been given by the traveler to this abandoned child left to die has it resulted in the beauty and the fame has now been used by this woman to become a prostitute. And it is not a selective prostitution. We read, you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by. I mean, we would say it is one thing to be a prostitute. Uh, it is one, it's another thing to give your favors to anyone who goes by. The gifts that were given have now been used for idol worship. And the children that resulted from the union between God and Israel, they in fact sacrificed these children as food to the gods. Bottom line, Israel forgot where she came from when she was naked and bare, kicking about in her blood. Okay, let's continue. Verse 23. Woe! Woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. A graphic description is given of Israel's unfaithfulness, which shocks even the Philistines. And the Philistines traditionally are seen as, you know, those ungodly people, the uncircumcised Philistines. But even these pagan people are shocked by the behavior of God's people, by the behavior of Israel. The strongest invite, indictment, I think, is this. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. But there's one other thing. A prostitute gets paid for her favors. This is not the case with Israel. Israel pays others. She's the prostitute, but she's the one who is paying others. She's unfaithful with others, and she pays them to be unfaithful. There seems to be almost a desperation to her promiscuity and her unfaithfulness. Are we beginning to sense on some level 
the sense of betrayal that God felt. And his outrage at his people. God chose Abraham at the beginning. It's the beginning point of Israel. And then Isaac and then Jacob and his 12 sons. God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Carried them through the wilderness for 40 years and brought them to the promised land. He provided for them. He cared for them. And how did they respond? By worshiping false gods and idols. By being unfaithful. By believing his promises. Yeah, God's our God. He'll take care of us. And yet worshiping others and violating his law. What did they think would happen? What did they think would happen? Well, now we're given a foretaste. Look at verse 35. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them, and they will all see your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers. They will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will become and no longer angry. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Those with whom Israel had been unfaithful will turn on her and destroy her. But wait, it is the Lord who will turn her over to her lovers. Unless we think this is simply a matter of unfaithfulness. This is the Lord's doing. Lord, the Lord is judging Israel for her unfaithfulness. Notice the following that she will receive the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. In the Old Testament, a woman who commits adultery is to be stoned to death, as is the man. But here we're talking about the woman. And in John chapter 8, we have a story. I don't know if you're familiar with the story where... Hold on. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they bring a woman to Jesus who's caught in the act of adultery. Highly suspicious for two reasons. First of all, where's the man? They don't bring the man. And secondly, how did they know that they could catch her in the act? It's a setup. It's a total trap. And what they do is they bring her to Jesus. Let me read. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Well, this is to try to trap Jesus. The point I'm trying to make is the punishment for a woman caught in adultery, that is what is going to happen to Israel. I will hand you over to your lovers. The Lord says they will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. It's like, wait a minute, isn't this how the story started? Back in the beginning, naked and bare and abandoned in a field left to die. God says, I will put a stop to your prostitution. There is a redemptive act to this. It isn't simply punishment, punishment. There is something that will be learned as a result of this. Now we come, again, remember these are segmented. It's like a dream. Just It goes in a different direction. And now it's about the family tree of unfaithfulness. Samaria and Sodom. Uh, Verse 44 is the key to this section. There is the expression, like mother, like daughter. Uh, I'm more familiar with like father, like son. But perhaps in keeping with the allegory, the proverb has to do with mother and daughter. And in this passage, the Lord speaks of other wicked people, other wicked nations, and how Israel is like them, actually worse than them. Verse 44. Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter. You are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children. You are a true sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. This goes back to verse number three. Remember the beginning of Jerusalem? It is interesting um, that the sisters of Judah, they'll be mentioned in the next verse, Samaria and Sodom, are described as despising their husbands. It has been suggested that this indicates that, yes, God is the God of Israel, but he is the God of all creation, of all the nations. And when a nation is unfaithful, they are unfaithful to God. Verse 46. Your older sister was Samaria, who lived to the north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you with her daughters, was Sodom. Samaria is the ten tribes to the north. Uh, in fact, as they've read to us today from John chapter 4, Jesus had to pass through Samaria, going from Judea up to Galilee. Okay? Uh, Sodom is to the south, in the, near the Dead Sea. It is interesting that Samaria is referred to as the older sister and Sodom as the younger sister, when in fact Sodom is much, much older. It's the time of Abraham. But if we take older to mean greater, that is larger in size. And uh, I, I think in terms of Spanish, when you say mas mejor, you know, that it is greater. It isn't simply that she's older, but she is in fact greater. That's what Samaria is. And Sodom was a smaller, it was a confederation of various cities. Verse 47. You not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. So you're like Samaria and Sodom, but you're worse than them. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Just a side note here. 
people have used this passage to say that in fact the sin of uh, Sodom was not sodomy, homosexuality, but that they in fact uh, were overfed, arrogant, unconcerned, didn't help the poor and needy. Yes, they did, but they also did detestable things, as mentioned in this passage. People seem to skip over that. Verse 51, Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they, and have made your sisters seem righteous by all the things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes along with them so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return what they were to what they were before and you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention Sodom, mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom and all her neighbors and the daughters of the Philistines all around you who despise you. You will bear the consequences of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. The bottom line is, the people back in Jerusalem and Judea, and Judah, they are more wicked than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're more wicked than the people of Samaria. In fact, they make them look righteous. When you compare Jerusalem with Sodom, Sodom looks righteous compared to Jerusalem. And verse number 58 says, you will bear the consequences. And yet, this is not the end of the chapter. Amazingly, all is not lost. Look at verse 59. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Verse 60. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. What? Yes, there is going to be judgment, but there is going to be redemption. And we hear similar words from Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem, Ezekiel's in Babylon. And they're both telling the people in Jerusalem, God's, God's going to punish you. Judgment is coming. But in Jeremiah 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Again, the analogy is there. Israel is the spouse. God is the husband. They entered into covenant, but Israel broke the covenant by being unfaithful. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And in the next chapter, in, in Jeremiah chapter 32, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them 
and I will inspire them, inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. Is this not, in fact, amazing grace? The hymn that we sang earlier today. After all that Israel has done, I mean, chapter 16 is just, we're bludgeoned with the unfaithfulness of Israel. As God said, you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yes, God will judge them and punish them. But he promises that he will, in fact, establish a covenant with them and make atonement for all that they have done. It's quite remarkable. On some sense, it doesn't make any sense. Imagine the story that we've read in chapter 16 that this traveler finds a child that's been abandoned and he cares for this child, takes care of that child. Eventually she grows up and he marries the child and lavishes all sorts of gifts on her and then she decides she would rather be with other men. Any man who passes by, she will sleep with. And they will not pay her, she will pay them. And what does she have to give them? All the wonderful things that the traveler gave, her husband gave to her. All the gifts that God had given to Israel, she squandered in worshiping false gods. But now we come to the end of chapter 16, and you may be wondering, Damon, what does this say to us? How does this apply to us? I think the place for us to begin is at the beginning of chapter 16. I think that the latter part might distract us. The, the wickedness of Israel, we're like, well, that's not me. That's not me. Well, don't begin at the middle or the end of the story. You need to go back to the beginning. Here we are given a description of a helpless infant, abandoned and left to die. As God says, you were thrown out into the open field. This is our condition when we are, when we are born into the world. Apart from God's grace, we are lost. We are cut off from God. It is as though we have been given life, we've been given birth, and then simply abandoned. But God, in his grace, rescues us. That's the place for us to begin. That we were helpless infants kicking about in our blood. And God, in his grace, reached out and saved us. If you don't see that, if you don't begin at the beginning of chapter 16, then in fact, what God has done for you is not seen as that significant. You might say, well, I come from a good family. I, I wasn't abandoned in the field. I'm a pretty good person. Then you will miss what God has done for you. All that you have, all that you are, is by God's grace. And what God has given you, all the gifts he has given you, you have used them for your own pleasure. In the prayer of confession today, we said we have followed too much the desires of our own hearts. And how do we follow the desires of our own hearts? With the gifts that God has given us. One of those gifts is life, breath. God has given us life, he's given us health, and we use that to follow our own desires. My intent, though, please hear me, is not somehow to make you feel bad, for you to feel guilty. There's time enough for that, okay? 
but rather I want each of us to recognize the grace of God, what God has done for us in our lives. If we don't see that, then the things that we have done that are wrong, and you know, even in our prayer of confession, we've, not, we've done things we shouldn't do, and we haven't done the things we should do, you know, like, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, you know, I've sinned, I've sinned, and we'll miss, we've really done something horrible. That God has been gracious, he has given us life, he has provided us with family, with skills, jobs, all the things we have. And what do we do? We follow our own desires. If we have no sense of the grace of God, then we will really have no sense of our sin. We will have no sense that, like Israel, we have been unfaithful. And we will lose sight of God's promises of redemption. It's like, well, I'm, I'm not that bad of a person. Come on, Damon, I'm, I'm not a bad person. And the people around me, they're not bad. They're good people. And I would say, go to the beginning of chapter 16. We are like an abandoned child in a field. Helpless. Kicking about in our blood. And it takes the grace of God in the form of a traveler to come along and rescue us. And that's precisely what God has done. The reality is, God has shown grace to every person on this planet. Because he's given each of us life. If we don't see that, then we will, in fact, think that God is rather presumptuous to say, you need to worship me. You need to obey me. Some years ago, I had a classmate and... um, she said to me, you know, what I think about God is he is the most self-centered, most demanding being there is in the universe. It's all about me. Worship me. Obey me. Okay, wait. You were like an abandoned child in a field, and God rescued you and gave you everything you have. How are you to respond? And the answer is in obedience. And Israel didn't do that. And for that, there will be consequences. Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely confess that there are passages in the Bible that we struggle with. That seem overly graphic. Almost vulgar. And we miss the point in our being offended, we miss the truly significant point of your grace and our faithlessness. How you have given us all things. And we may from time to time say thank you, but we use them for our own desires, for our own idols, the things that are more important to us than you. Open our eyes to see the wonder of your grace. And by that grace, may we humble ourselves and obey you, worship you, and follow you. 
May our first thought not be of our guilt, but of your grace. Because if we begin with our guilt, we may never get out of that hole. Just dig ourselves deeper and deeper. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we have been faithless. But more important than that is your grace. May your spirit drive these truths home to our hearts. May we think on them in the days to come. We're grateful that you've brought us together today. Uh, We remember Dave in our prayers as he recovers. That you would give him strength. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.